0: faith and reason podcasts new media for the new evangelization from franciscan university of steubenville find more at faithandreason.com thanks everyone if i speak without the microphone can you hear me in the back yes it's like when We begin uh, Mass, we say in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then one time I said, is the microphone working? And people replied, and with your spirit. (laughs) So we get into routine, but that's okay. It's nice to be back here at my alma mater. The theme of this talk could also be, see what a difference 23 years can make. Because when I was here as a student, as an accounting and Spanish major, one of the last things I expected was to become a Franciscan, let alone the president of our sister institution. I jokingly say that I was one of perhaps five male students at the time who did not give the priesthood a thought while here at Franciscan University, God has a sense of humor and look at me now. So, yes, God gets you if He wants you. But I'm happy to be here and uh, talk a little bit about servant leadership and reminisce a little bit about my own time in household. I was sharing with some of the Ahim Adonai guys that, one, I was happy to see that they were still in existence. Okay, so this is a good thing, there is continuity. Um, One thing I failed to mention to them, back in my day, now this is 20 plus years ago, We had a very controversial decision to make within the ranks of the household. It was one that involved a lot of debate, a lot of tension. We were split along party lines. We wanted to change the color of the household t-shirt from black to white. And we were involved in about six weeks of debate. And there was a lot of tension, a lot of loggerheads, but in the end the white t-shirts won out by, I think, one vote. But I see now you're back to black. So we've come full circle, (laughs) we've come full circle. I asked them about the household banner, and for those of you who are watching this on the rebroadcast, I apologize in advance to those who were here in the 1980s and early 1990s. In 1992, when I was coordinator, the household banner was frayed, lots of strings hanging from it. The people on the banner looked more like daffodils in a circle, it was pretty bad even for back then, and so I said, hey, maybe we should upgrade the banner. This was even after the T-shirt debacle, The the banner thing was too much for us, so we retracted it, but I'm happy to hear that you have upgraded the banner, okay? So, if you wait long enough, it'll happen, So this is very good, this is very good. Um, I want to talk a little bit first about servant leadership. As Father Gregory said, I did write a dissertation in that area, so I'll give some didactic comments, if you will. I'm going to frame it in terms of Saint Francis of Assisi, Frame it in terms of some early church leaders, talk about it in terms of what servant leadership uh, means as a household coordinator, or as a student leader, and then leave you with perhaps some of my own experiences, how servant leadership at the time as a household coordinator helped to shape me and then what it did for me in my professional career, and how it's brought me to where I am today, and hopefully anecdotally, you know, those stories will be helpful to you. St. Francis of Assisi, obviously the patron saint of this university, perhaps one of the most popular saints in the world today, even amongst non-Catholics, St. Francis, very popular in the ecumenical movement, the interfaith movement. then-Pope John Paul II in the 1980s had an interfaith prayer service with religious leaders from around the world in Assisi. It was very symbolic at the time that he did not bring everyone to Rome. Instead, they all gathered in Assisi, people from all kinds of religious walks of life, to pray for unity, first and foremost, and to pray to the one God that we all believe in. So, using St. Francis of Assisi as the focal point, I just want to focus our attention on the fact that St. Francis of Assisi was a servant leader, he never used the term, but he was one of these ones who led by example. As Franciscans, we profess vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and that's because, A, St. Francis did, He wasn't a monk, he wanted to live in the world and minister to people in the world, but he still professed those vows. And the early Franciscan followers became Franciscan in large part because of his example. So when St. Francis prayed by himself in front of the San Damiano Crucifix and and heard Christ talk to him through that crucifix saying, Francis, go and rebuild my church. St. Francis took that very literally, and because the chapel, because the church that he was in at the time was in disrepair, the roof had fallen in, the walls were crumbling, he took it to mean that he should literally rebuild this church. And so he set about doing that, and then his friends and neighbors saw what he was doing, and they joined him, and they helped him to literally rebuild the church, but in time St. Francis would come to realize that Rebuild My Church had a more metaphorical meaning. And before you know it, the Franciscans became a group of hundreds and soon thousands, and Franciscans would permeate their way around the world, and the Franciscan movement would help to rebuild a church, in a metaphorical sense, that had fallen into disrepair. One of the things that we Franciscans like to point out about that is the Lord does not give us more than we can handle at the time. It was appropriate, and I think it was normal, for St. Francis at that first moment to literally rebuild the church. At the end of his life, he did not look back and say, oh gosh, I took God literally. I didn't have to rebuild that church after all. He meant the church in a metaphorical sense. No, 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 no. He took it literally because that's what he could handle at that moment. He did what what the Lord was asking him to do, and as he grew in faith, and as he grew in love of God, then he moves into the more metaphorical, the broader sense. Said another way, if at that first moment, in front of the San Damiano Crucifix, the Lord had said to Saint Francis, you are going to found an order, and you are going to be a reformer in a church that needs it, get to work. We joke that Francis would have run out of the San Damiano Chapel screaming, because he couldn't have handled it. Think about that. The Lord gave Francis what he could handle at that moment, and then on his faith's journey, he grew into the next step. And at the end of his life, he looks back and realizes there are thousands of Franciscans who are having an impact in a positive way on the church. And that transformation took place just because Francis wanted to live vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, because he wanted to be like Christ. It's so simple it's profound. He just wanted to be like Christ and because he was being like Christ, the early Franciscans, they were just imitating him. He was a servant leader without even using the term. Any time a Franciscan would say to Francis of Assisi, I want to be like you, Francis, Francis would very very quickly say, oh no you don't, you want to be like Christ. I want to be like Christ, and so do you. I am poor, chaste, and obedient, because Christ is poor, chaste, and obedient, and we're all doing this in imitation of Christ. That in and of itself is a lesson in leadership. Just be like Christ, follow his example, and then you set the example in return. So when we talk about servant leadership, I do try to frame it in terms of Saint Francis of Assisi, because he just gave a simple, humble example, and and because, of course, he is is the founder of the order of of which we are members. There's other examples, scriptural, of servant leaders. I think the obvious one is Jesus himself. Jesus set the example, we're supposed to be like him. And there's several instances of Jesus as a servant leader. Again, he never uses the term, but there's several examples in Scripture that we could point to. There's one in Luke where he, this is the closest he comes to using the term servant leadership. He says, I'm called to serve as one among you. The apostles had been squabbling as to who was the greatest, or who was in charge, and they were going back and forth. And Jesus very quickly puts an end to that discussion and says, I am called to serve as one among you. Now, when you think about it, that's a huge statement. Here is God taken on flesh, walking the earth. He could have said, I'm in charge of you reverence me, where is my throne? But no, he says, I am called to serve as one among you. Not first amongst equals, but one among you. It's so simple, it's profound. Another key example, I think, is the Last Supper discourse. Now, of course, those of you who are theology majors, or uh, have been to church more than once, you know that the Last Supper dis, uh, discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are essentially the same. Okay? They're gathered around the table, it's the breaking of the bread, uh, probably taken from 1 Corinthians and so forth. But when you look in the Gospel of John, you realize that that Last Supper discourse takes on an entirely different tone. Jesus' farewell discourse in the, in, in the Gospel of John alone is several chapters. Halfway through, the apostles stand up and Jesus stand up to leave, and then he talks for two more chapters. This was the farewell discourse. But the symbolic piece is when, at the end of supper, Jesus washes the feet of the apostles. And so on the Holy Thursday liturgy, that gospel is used. It's interesting. The church on Holy Thursday, the day of the institution of the Eucharist, does not use the Last Supper account from any of the synoptics. The Church uses it from the Gospel of John, because it's in the Gospel of John that Jesus takes off his outer garment, puts on the apron, and then walks around the table, washing the feet of the disciples. And Of course, Peter has kind of a visceral reaction to this. You know, how could the King of Kings, the one who Peter Recognized in faith as the Messiah, how could this person be washing his feet? But then when Peter comes to the realization of what's happening, he says, okay, well not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. But the example right there, the King of Kings, the Messiah, getting down on his knees to wash the feet of his brethren, that is the example of Servant Leadership, capital S, capital L, Servant Leadership. And it's from there that other examples fall into place. There are several other Gospel-related examples of that, but rather than go into those, I want to make mention of St. Paul. Now, St. Paul, I've always been very fond of him. St. Paul, of course, was um, a Jew, first and foremost. He was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel, who was a very famous Pharisee at the time. St. Paul, very zealous. And so when this Christian, the so-called at the time Christian movement, starts up, St. Paul, who was very Jewish and very loyal, sees this Christian sect as a threat to Judaism. And so St. Paul, in his zeal, of course, goes out and Not only does he persecute the Christians, as we hear in Scripture, as we hear in the Acts of the Apostles, he's dragging Christians out of their home and putting them under arrest. And of course, when Saint Stephen is martyred, who's there at the coat room collecting everybody's cloaks but Saul? And he's giving tacit approval to what's happening to Stephen, the first martyr. So I say, and this is is not a technical term, but I like to say that St. Paul, prior to his conversion, was Super Jew. Okay, so if there's, it's not a technical term, Super Jew, capital S, capital J, Super Jew. Very excited, on fire for the faith. Now, I say that to set up the following. When you have a conversion experience, your personality does not change. You are who you are, your personality does not change. When you have a conversion experience, your priorities change. Your personality is the same, but your priorities change. So with that in mind, Saul becomes Paul. He spends time learning from the apostles. He then goes out and converts the lion's share of the Roman Empire. He writes, The Bulk of the New Testament. Father Benedict Rochelle, now of happy memory, and I have to give him full credit for the following, Father Benedict Rochelle even went so far as to say, it's just as well that Paul was not one of the 12 apostles. Father Benedict Rochelle's theory was, if Saint Paul had been one of the 12, Saint Paul, in his zeal, would have wanted to have been crucified in place of Christ and things would have turned out a lot differently. St. <laughs> Paul maybe would have been crucified next to Jesus, and if that had happened, we would never have heard Jesus' seven last words because St. Paul would have been screaming at people, how dare you crucify him? And St. Paul would have dictated three, apostles, three, three epistles from the cross. Okay, <laughs> So God had his hand in the timing of it as far as when St. Paul's conversion took place. There was a reason for that. But I say this to say, Paul's personality did not change. He was super Jew, and then after his conversion, he was super Jew for Jesus. Super Jew for Jesus, all right? Still Jewish, but believed now in Christ, and was just as zealous after his conversion as he was before. Saint Paul, again, does not use the term servant leader but that's what he is. So when he goes around to the various churches that he has founded throughout the Roman Empire, he's very quick to point out to the early churches that he will provide for himself. The early churches are generous with him in terms of providing hospitality, but St. Paul's the one who said, if you don't work, you don't eat and no pun intended, he put his money where his mouth was. And so when he stayed with one of his churches that he founded for any length of time, he was also quick to work, and sell his products, and finance his own room and board and so forth. He put his money where his mouth was, quite literally. He set the example, he was the servant leader. Again, he never used that term, but that's what he was wasn't from Biblical times, but one other early church leader was St. Augustine. Now, St. Augustine, of course, we're talking the 300s to 400s A.D. St. Augustine, like, may he rest in peace, Father Benedict Rochelle, and other theologians who you may have taken classes from, did not have an unpublished thought. And I mean that respectfully. St. Augustine, any time he thought something, he wrote it down. Okay, it's taken centuries to translate St. Augustine's work into English, because there was so much. St. Augustine, though, when he, after he had become bishop, in those days, of course, he, they were elected bishops, so he was elected from amongst his people. St. Augustine had a, a very famous saying at the time. He said, I am a Christian with you. He was talking to his congregation, to his flock, from whom he had been elected as bishop. He says, I am a Christian with you, but I am a bishop for you. I am a Christian with you, but I am a bishop for you. Yes, bishops are an authority in the church, and some bishops can have very fancy residences, but when you go back to the 300s AD, here's an example of a bishop whose first and foremost call was to serve his flock. Again, he didn't use the term servant leadership, but that's what he lived. That's what he lived. So, number of early church figures who you can point to as servant leaders, even though they didn't use the term, the common theme, they were all just imitating Christ who had come to serve as one among us. So they were just following the example of the founder of the church himself, Jesus Christ. Again, it's so simple, it's profound. Fast forward present day. In a day and age where we talk about separation of church and state, and some people can look at us critically for bringing our faith into the public square, servant leadership, I believe, is one of these these ideas, one of these concepts that in many ways is like a Trojan horse. I think back to that that story from ancient times where the Trojan horse is wheeled into the town and in the middle of the night the soldiers come out of the horse and take over. Servant leadership is the same way. For those of you who upon graduation will work for the church, in many ways you will have it easy. You will work with people of faith, people who believe what you do. It will be no big deal to pray at work because you work for the church. Okay, that's easy. But for those of you who may not have that luxury, you may have to go to work for an organization that is, we hope not, but could be godless, an organization that could be hostile to religion. You might work with people who don't share the beliefs that you have. But servant leadership is one of the ways that you can Trojan horse your faith into the workplace. Servant leadership, when you read the literature, and Lord knows I read plenty of it when I wrote my dissertation servant leadership as a modern concept started coming into the vo- into vogue in the late 1970s and a gentleman by the name of Robert Greenleaf who was an executive for AT&T he wrote on servant leadership and he's the one who defined it as we as we know it today but servant leadership, I think, is one of those nice ways where you can take what appears to be a secular concept and bring religion into it through the back door, and before you know it, your faith is in the workplace, and you're living it, and you're sharing it with other people, but you're using this fairly nice term called servant leadership. It doesn't have an overtly religious sound to it, but as soon as you scratch the surface, you realize it's rooted in Christ, it's certainly rooted in religion. and. Uh, It's a nice way of getting getting faith into the workplace, or some place where faith may not be that well accepted. In terms of servant leadership itself, and here's where I believe it starts to tie in to household coordinators or really any type of leadership position that you may hold either here as a student or upon graduation in the workplace or, or in other venues. There are several characteristics I think that a servant leader embodies. One of them is listening. A leader is a listener. So often, a leader could have this attitude that he or she comes into a situation and starts to impose on others. Or the leader reads a situation, thinks he or she knows what needs to be done, comes in and starts telling people what to do. But the servant leader listens first and speaks later. number one characteristic of a servant leader is that of a good listener. A servant leader also has empathy. A leader could come in and take the attitude, I'm going to fix this, I know what's best, they'll get over it. This would be like ripping off a band-aid, but they'll be fine in the end. No. A servant leader has empathy, understands that the people that work for him or her has feelings, You listen to them, you empathize with them. In some ways, characteristic number three, the servant leader is called to be a healer. Particularly when a servant leader comes into a situation where there has been chaos, or there has been difficulty, or there has been strife, discord, the servant leader oftentimes has a healing calm about him or her not in a messianic sense, but rather as one who seeks to be a consensus builder, seeks to heal a situation and bring calm. Another aspect of servant leadership is that of awareness. The servant leader sees the situation, gets the facts, becomes aware of what's going on, rather than blindly coming in and imposing on the people around them. The servant leader also builds community. And I think this is where, this is an area I think particularly relevant to household coordinators. The servant leader builds up community, seeks to find ways that can draw people in and draw people together rather than imposing from the outside. Another story about St. Francis of Assisi himself and I think this also can be, um, can be tied in to what you do as, as um, household coordinators. St. Francis was very strict with himself when it came to religious practice. He was very strict. He wanted so much to be like Christ that he set high standards for himself. So fasting, fasting from food and, and doing penitential practices were very much a part of St. Francis' daily life. And so when Francis said it was time to fast, the other friars of course would listen to him and they would fast as well. There's a particular story where the early Franciscans, perhaps they're living in Rivo Torto at the time, there's a very strict fast in place and one of the, one of the friars can't quite handle it. And so the friars are all sleeping, and it's the middle of the night, and this poor friar is doubled over in pain from hunger. He wants so much to be like Saint Francis, and he wants so much to be like Christ, and he doesn't want to break the fast, but he is in pain. And Saint Francis, as the story goes, hears this friar moaning in pain, and Francis, the servant leader, even though he is strict with himself, is compassionate to this friar. And St. Francis actually gives the friar something to eat and basically calls off the fast and is kind about it. And basically says to the other friars, and I'm paraphrasing now, don't make fun of this person. This is our brother and we're all in this together. And it's okay that he can't fast. We will break the fast with him. That's St. Francis, strict with himself, but also has a kindness about him. When one suffers, the other suffers. When one requires compassion, the others are compassionate." That's a particularly poignant story from the early days of St. Francis. Looking back on my time as a student, 20 plus years ago, I probably arrived here before many of you were born. So in some ways I'm talking about ancient history. At the same time, human nature does not change, there's nothing new under the sun. Some of the households that are in existence today were in existence back then, and mine, ours, was in existence I think even 15 to 20 years prior to that. So there's a lot of continuity here. We join a household for a particular reason. We're looking for brotherhood, we're looking for sisterhood. We're looking for people who will hold us accountable, our peers. We want to pray with them, and if we individually are not praying, we want someone to hold us accountable. We're all in it together. There's the friendship aspect. I dare say that the friends you make in college will be the friends that you have for the rest of your lives. Now, it may be too soon for you to predict that or call that, but I can say for me personally My high school friends have come and gone. I lost contact with them a long time ago. But even as recently as last weekend for my inauguration, there were household brothers and friends from college who made the trip 20 plus years after graduation to be there with me. The friendships you make here will transcend all kinds of things and will last. I feel safe making that prediction for you as well. The foundation that is laid here will also set the stage for you for the rest of your life. Again, I'll use my own story as an example. I was here an accounting and Spanish major. I, in my wisdom, thought that I would be working in international business. I thought because I was fluent in Spanish that this would help me in my accounting career. My accounting career was short-lived. I got a master's degree in taxation, of all things, at Arizona State University. I think I can make this joke here. I make this joke at St. Francis all the time, and I'm digressing for just a moment. Think about this. I left Franciscan University of Steubenville, and then I went to Arizona State University? Talk about a contrast in cultures, (laughs) and that's an understatement. Now what I like to do at St. Francis is make a joke about it. I joke that when I got to Arizona State University it was the number two party school in the nation. At the time it was. And when I left Arizona State University it was the number one party school in the (laughs) nation. And I spent, especially since I became president, the last several months assuring everyone that I had nothing to do with that. When I went from number two to number one, nothing to do with that. Okay, It was just purely coincidence. But I was an accountant, I worked in public accounting and I became a Franciscan because that's what God called me to do and I thought, well I will leave the world of accounting behind, I will give it all up and I will do whatever God wants me to do. It was, it was an idyllic image, there were butterflies flying and there were birds in the trees, it was, it was idyllic. And then I became a Franciscan and then I started teaching accounting at St. Francis University and then became the treasurer for the Franciscans. And so I make the point that you never really give anything up because God gives it all back. When you place your life at his disposal, he takes what you have and he uses it. It's pretty amazing. Just like St. Paul kept his personality and was still zealous, you will keep your gifts and God will use them wherever he has you at the time. You lay a foundation. Anything you have done in life previously will help you present day. Anything you're doing present day will help you in the future. The trick is, is to allow yourself to put it at God's disposal. And that that can take grace and that can take trust, but when you do that you find that God rewards it and gives it all back. You became a household member in large part for the fraternal aspect, the relational aspect of it because we are communal people. We could pray by ourselves, but we're called to pray as a church. The gospel is proclaimed to a community, people who live and work with one another. And the household models that here on campus. I'll take it a step further. I like to believe, I do believe, that you became a household coordinator because you were first a good household brother, or first a good household sister. Fairly safe to assume you didn't run around campaigning for it. You knew all the work that went into it. You saw the previous coordinator, and you said, oh my God, that poor person, I need to pray for him or her. And then somehow you got elected. But that's because your household brethren and your household sisters saw good qualities in you. They said, that person's a good sister, that person's a good brother, what better person to lead us? And so God lifted you up. And so when you think about it in terms of servant leadership, it's about being a good listener, it's about being a healer, it's about being a community builder. What you're doing as a leader in your household I think is a microcosm, a precursor of things to come. You're a good leader now, you're a good listener, you're a good consensus builder, and the skills that you learn in your household, and I say this from personal experience, will serve you down the road. You may become a leader in the church, you may become a manager in an accounting firm, you may become a teacher, you will become something, the skills that you learn here, you will take with you. When people knock on your door because they have a problem or they need to talk to you as the coordinator, they're seeking you out for good advice. There's a reason for that, the Lord is using you as an instrument today, perhaps in preparation for using you as an instrument tomorrow. Perhaps you already know from your own experience, being a leader, particularly a coordinator, may not be as glorious as it sounds, Uh, at least in the business world, there's this mystique around being an executive, everybody thinks it's glamorous. Oh, that person's in charge, and he or she can do whatever they want, and they make it look so easy, they just sit at their desk all day. If it looks easy, it's because there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. I think it's no different as a coordinator. If things are running smoothly, it's because there's a lot of work going on behind (coughs) the scenes, and to you as the leader, that is certainly to your credit. One of the rewarding things for me as a household coordinator, was being able to be a, I'll use the word guide, was was journeying, was being with my household brothers, and it was a privileged position to be in. Because as the coordinator, they come to you with their joys, but they also come to you with their sorrows. They come to you with good things, but they also come to you with some challenging things. You're in a privileged position, and that was one of the rewarding things for me, was to journey, with my household brothers. I was only coordinator for one semester. In fact, I'd only been in the household for one semester because I transferred here as a junior and I was a coordinator for one semester. It was busy, it was stressful, but it was very rewarding as well. So, you're a servant leader. You're called to be like Christ. You're called to follow His example. Benedict XVI said the following, and Benedict XVI was talking about St. Paul and servant leadership, and Benedict said this sometime, I think, in 2000, I forget the exact year, but Benedict XVI says the following, Let us think once again of that phrase of St. Paul. Both Apollos and I are ministers of Jesus, each one in his own way, as it is God who gives the growth. This is valid for us today. This is valid for you today as leaders and as household coordinators. You are humble ministers of Jesus. You serve the gospel in the measure that you can, according to your gifts. and You ask God to make his gospel, to make his church, and to make your household grow today. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing Pope Benedict in that situation, but the Lord has you in a particular place for a particular reason. You've put your gifts and talents at the service of your household, and the Lord will bless that. And the Lord will take your experiences here, and as you go into the real world after graduation, the Lord will take those experiences and bless them again. Who you are today will shape who you become tomorrow. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.